the Recovery Executive Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. The Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in behavioral health and addiction treatment, marketing, and growth. You can always find out more about them at www.circlesocialinc.com. Today, as always, we are getting into a business piece about addiction treatment and how to run a more effective center in specific we are talking about billing. This is a wheelhouse that I am definitely not an expert in, so I'm very excited to have Greg Kalin come on. He is one of the partners and co-founders of Prosperity Behavioral Health, and he has some amazing insights. I've met with and talked with Greg on several occasions in the past, and he just knows exactly what's happening. What I like as well is he's very transparent and willing to get into the weeds about what works and what doesn't work in billing vendor relationships. And then we talk a lot about the trends uh, with insurance providers, where reimbursements are going in network, out of network, how to make sure you're getting higher reimbursements, what value-based care means for the addiction treatment industry, all these really relevant topics that everyone's talking about right now that needs an answer to. Um, Greg has them. So I'm very excited to share his expertise with you. Hey, Greg, really appreciate you coming on the show today. How are you doing? Doing great, Nick. Really glad to be on. Yeah, thanks for coming. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Greg Kalin, and uh, my company is Prosperity Behavioral Health. Um, I really came into this industry a little while back uh, working for Sunspire Health, which was a national uh, network of addiction treatment providers. Um, and I joined that company shortly after they were acquired by Kohlberg and Company, a private equity firm. Um, and I really came in to do strategy, growth, and professionalize the finance operation there. Um, and so basically, I you know sort of had that experience over a couple of years. I worked with Sunspire um, as they went through a really major sort of transition in the payer environment that I'm sure you know all of your list- listeners are familiar with. Um, Sunspire was primarily an ad and network. Um, you know, inpatient uh, treatment business. And that uh, that dynamic really changed a lot in the first sort of six months that I was there. So I sort of helped manage the business through that uh, transition. And then we sort of moved into growth mode. We acquired Meadows Behavioral Health, which, um, you know, is one of the, the oldest and, and most well-established programs in the country. Uh, and we also acquired Bornwood uh, in Boston, an acute psychiatric facility. So we grew that business about um, you know three times the size it was when I joined, um, and then my partner Aaron, who was the controller um, in that organization, he and I uh, ultimately wound up deciding that you know we wanted to take the skills and experience that we had gained through that experience, um, and and use that to help a broader set of uh, of behavioral health providers out there in uh, you know across the country. So we founded Prosperity about a year and a half ago to do exactly that. So I'm really excited to have you guys on the show because you've got that great experience from the financial end and the billing models and all that kind of stuff as we'll get into and revenue cycle development, right, that you had with Sunspire and some of your also previous experience before that. I know you and your partner, Aaron, have uh, extensive background in this space. 
what I've seen with some of our clients and just in the space in general is that there's a lack of clarity around what a good billing vendor looks like. And I've also seen a lot of centers being taken advantage of maybe, or maybe certain billing vendors are just not doing things to the best of their ability because um, it's easier on a profit end for them. So can you talk a little bit about what a good billing company looks like and what a center should be looking for or what questions they should be asking when they're looking for a new billing vendor? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a word, the way we think about uh, our relationships with our clients is really partnership. So the first thing you should be looking for in a, in a billing vendor is somebody who's going to partner with you, not just provide you a service. Um, and there are a few things that go into that. One thing that is really, really critical is uh, transparency and communication. Um, so our approach is um, all of our clients have direct access to our billing system. They can see their, uh, their patients, their claims, their collections in real time. Uh, we have nothing to hide from them. Um, and that includes all of our follow-up status, all of our denial status, all of our notes that our uh, AR specialists put in the system. Um, and we think that's really, really important to establish that level of trust and also to give our clients the information that they need to, uh, you know, to manage the business. Um, you know, the second thing that's really important in that sort of partnership model is um, that we try to be thought partners with our clients. I mean, we really, um, you know, the core of our, of our business is the revenue cycle function, utilization review, billing, collections, appeals. Um, but we also are, we, we think of ourselves or we describe ourselves as a solutions provider, uh, financial solutions. And that encompasses accounting, it encompasses accounts payable, it encompasses budgeting and forecasting. Uh, corporate strategy. And so we're always trying to, um, you know, A, provide those services to folks who don't, uh, you know, don't have that resource in-house, but also even if somebody does have that resource in-house, really work with those people to understand and feedback um, data and information from the revenue cycle, from the billing function into other aspects of the business and help our clients gain insight, um, not just collect cash flow. Okay, so can we dig into some of the specifics on that? So, for example, like one thing that I know happens a lot of the time is there are certain billing issues that are very easy to get resolved. And so a billing company will do those because they often get their money on a percentage basis, right? So it's very easy for them to collect 10% or whatever it is off of an easy utilization review or submission. Um, but then there are more difficult ones that a lot of billing companies will just choose not to do because there's a less likelihood that they'll get paid on the back end. So the center loses out on money, right? Because they're not even trying to get the money that they're owed. And the billing company doesn't necessarily care because their chance of getting paid on it is smaller, so they don't want to put in the effort for it. So can you speak to that and maybe other examples that people should be on the lookout for? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, that's a very, a very common one. Um, and, and, you know, really that, uh, the, the way to combat that is, again, to sort of come back to the transparency and, and communication and also the sort of data point. Um, you know, one of the things that we, we provide in addition to this sort of real-time access to our system 24-7, our clients can log in anytime and see what the status is. But we also provide every month, <clears throat> excuse me, we provide every month um, an AR review. And what that does, we do that internally and we do that with our clients. And basically what that means is we look at every single claim, not just the client, um, not just the account as a whole, not just a you know, particular payer, but we look at every claim. And it is our policy um, that every single claim gets touched, gets followed up on, gets a meaningful update every 30-day period. Um, and basically, you know, 
the, that's, that sort of is an uh, uh, enforcement mechanism to prevent that sort of natural, um, you know, you're sort of describing a, an economic incentive that's really there. I mean, for sure, the, the uh, harder claims take more staff time. They're less profitable for the billing company. But our perspective is your business is our business. Um, and what that, you know, one of the ways that we, we uh, one of the things that we mean by that is that every single claim really, really matters to us because we know that every single dollar matters to you. And the way that manifests itself is that every claim gets touched and followed up on and updated in a you know, real way, not just called the insurance company, left a message, but here's the action step I took, here are the next steps on this claim, here's the path to collect it. Um, and we hold ourselves to that standard, and we expect our clients to hold us to that standard, and we provide them the information to do that. Hmm, that's great. So can you give any other specific examples of other issues that might be common within the billing company scene um, that centers should be asking their companies about or maybe raising a red flag and saying, hey, maybe I should dig deeper into this? Yeah, absolutely. And another really common uh, thing that happens is that uh, the payers just underpay claims. And that can take different forms depending whether you're in network or out of network. Um, but the simplest example is on an out of network claim. Um, the the payers will often uh, write a check for less than they should. Well, how do you know it's less than it should be? The only way you can know is by looking at past claims. Um, because if you call them up and you ask them what's the usual and customary rate for this area, they're not going to tell you, um, or they're going to tell you to look at your EOB. Um, and you just got the EOB with the check. So, you know, let's say that you got a check for $500 for a residential day from Blue Cross. Um, well, the only way to know that that, uh, or the, the, the only way to know, to really know that that's, um, you know, less than you deserve for that day is to go back to your old claims and look and see, do you have a residential day from Blue Cross in the last three months where you got paid more? Um, and this is another area where, um, you know, a lot of people, both, you know, outsourced billing companies and in-house revenue cycle teams, um, you know, don't have the manpower, they don't have the technological tools, they don't have the savvy to, to do this. Um, but it's a very important part of our process is that when we get a check, we have tools that allow us to, to verify that payment against our past history and make sure that that check is, you know, as much as it should be. And if it's not, you know, we, we appeal that. We go back to the payer and we, you know, ask for it to be repriced. We provide, you know, documentation of the, of the previous payment. Um, and those, you know, those are really sort of, um, not to say easy, but they're sort of um, great opportunities in, you know, just in the claims flow that, that we see every day to go back and pick up extra money for, for clients that uh, is often left on the table. Oh, that's really interesting. And so again, this is definitely is not my wheelhouse, which is definitely one of the reasons I want you on the show. Uh, but can you compare claims across different centers? Is that something that an insurance company would listen to? Or are they very specific on a center per center level? In terms of how they pay? No, so you, you definitely can. Um, obviously, we, you know, we do all of this on a, you know, HIPAA compliant, confidentiality compliant basis. Um, but but we definitely can use that as a tool in our arsenal. So obviously there are a lot of different um, you know criteria that come into play. There's you know obviously the levels of care is the most obvious, and it has to be the same payer. Um, but you have to look at the diagnosis code. You have to look at the you know geographic region. So there are a lot of different factors that come into play, and that's why it's that's why it's hard um, and and labor intensive to go back and do that process because it often ends up in a negotiation with the payers about you know does this or does this not qualify, um, you know, as an underpayment. Um, so there, so it, it, it is tricky. There are a lot of sort of very specific factors at play. Um, but 
um, it is one of the, the things that we think is an advantage, an inherent advantage of an outsourced revenue cycle provider is that we do have that broader data set. We do have that sort of cross-section of the industry um, that we can use on behalf of all of our clients to their advantage. Hmm. Okay. And maybe we can dig into the history a little bit, right? Because you mentioned billing codes. And so in the past, there weren't necessarily billing codes through some providers, which is why people were able to get sky-high reimbursements at times. And people you know, tried different billing codes and you know, did different things to try and get higher payments back. Can you kind of talk about the history of that and then why that reimbursement has been basically steadily dropping for the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, so ultimately it all comes back to um, you know, the way the industry evolved. So uh, this is one of the things that's been really interesting to see as we've done this over a, you know, sort of a long period of time. Um, back in the day, uh, the payers were not that sophisticated. It was a relatively new service that they were covering, um, you know, as a result of the Mental Health Parity Act and the ACA. Um, all of a sudden, a bunch of insurance companies that previously hadn't covered these services were now required to provide this coverage. Um, and so they didn't know much about behavioral health. Behavioral health was a relatively small portion of their risk pool. Um, and so as a result of that, they weren't paying much attention to it, and, and um, they were really following the provider's lead in terms of how they were reimbursing for the services. Um, and so that led to a lot of opportunity for providers um, who were not necessarily, uh, you know, the most um, uh, pure-hearted of, uh, of the bunch to manipulate the system. And it also, you know, created, as, as that happened, um, you know, other folks, uh, not to say tagged along exactly, but you know the whole industry really sort of was was swept up in this wave of you know we can bill whatever whatever prices we want, we can bill um, you know for whatever services we want. The documentation was very thin, but the payers weren't really you know looking that hard at it. Um, and so what you had was this sort of uh, balloon or a bubble um, in in financial terms um, of um, you know of opportunity that 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 um, that a lot of providers in the industry were taken advantage of, whether they were conscious about it or not. Um, what happened a couple of years ago was that the payers all of a sudden, um, you know, took a look at their books and they realized this was a meaningful amount of money they were spending on this service, coinciding with the, you know, press coverage about the opioid epidemic, and all of a sudden people were paying a lot more attention to behavioral health. Um, and so what's happened then is that in reaction to that, the payers have said, we're going to impose a lot tougher standards, we're going to have a lot higher documentation requirements, um, and they're starting to exercise their, uh, the power of their size over the last couple of years to really enforce um, their own point of view about what the appropriate treatment is and what the appropriate price for that treatment should be onto the providers, who tend to be much smaller and much less um, you know, able to throw their weight around. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Okay. Well, what I, I want to kind of highlight that you mentioned is the industry as a whole was actually kind of complicit in creating this negative perspective of their own field by the payers. You know, as, as I've talked about on other shows and in other areas, um, and as I want to kind of get into here, it's about building a relationship with the providers and their relationship, the trust was really broken um, by the field as almost a whole because we were overbilling and not properly documenting and things like that. And so now there's been this backlash and we have to rebuild that relationship, I think. So can you talk a little bit about 
what you see as effective ways to work with providers to obtain higher reimbursements? Because you can. A lot of people don't realize that you can get better reimbursements if you have a good relationship with your provider. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And I'm, I'm really glad that you sort of went in this direction because that's where I was about to go and I sort of stopped myself. So, you know, I think the, the, the good thing that's happening right now is that, um, you know, people are starting to as you say, sort of come to uh, come to the realization that this adversarial relationship between the stakeholders here, in particular, you know, in this conversation, the payers and the providers, um, but more broadly, you know, talking about the regulators and the community and, um, you know, law enforcement, this adversarial transactional relationship that we've had up to now is is not going to work. Uh, over the long term, and it's not going to be the way forward. Um, so, so people are starting to move in this direction of, hey, let's, um, you know, let's collaborate more. Let's align around our common incentive, which is helping to, you know, helping more and more people achieve and sustain uh, recovery. Um, and that's in, you know, that's in the interest of the payers. That's in the interest of the providers. It's obviously in the, in the interest of the patients um, and the patient advocates and the families. So everybody has this common objective that we can rally around. Um, and people are starting to realize that, that that's true and, and really move in that direction. Um, I think to, to answer your question directly about how do you sort of um, tangibly as a, as a treatment provider move towards that and, and improve your payer relations, a big part of that is about value, shifting the conversation from price or quantity to value. Um, and what I mean by that is our philosophy at Prosperity is good treatment is good business. and the more you can uh, provide outstanding care and the more you can demonstrate the quality of the care you're providing um, and the more you can engage the payer in that conversation, um, the better off you will be. And, you know, you have, have talked on, uh, on uh, previous uh, podcasts about the importance of that from a marketing perspective. But, you know, I just think it's important to underline that it's equally true from the reimbursement perspective. The more, the more you can move the conversation towards value, um, the, the more constructive those discussions are going to be. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because you're right. The relationship's everything. And, you know, an example I often give for these kind of situations is, you know, my wife went to the emergency room for an issue last year. And they billed our insurance $20,000 for that emergency room visit. You know, it's just astronomical. Um, well, when people with addictions, if you look at the data, right, people with like heavy addictions go to the emergency room 10 times more <laughs> than your average person. So if I'm paying $20,000 10 times a year for someone, right, and you can get them better, and even if you charge me $25,000, you're still saving me, you know, almost 200000 a year if you help that person get better. And so there is a very strong financial incentive as an insurance provider to work with good treatment centers that are effective in their treatments. And so if you can establish that relationship and maybe you can speak to this, but show those outcomes, right? A lot of providers are expecting outcomes data at this point. Um, you can build that relationship and get those reimbursements at a higher level. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I will say that part of the, you know, the first step in building that relationship is, um, is, is really building a trust. Um, and it goes back to the, you know, some of the themes that I talked about before in our business, communication, transparency, um, you know, but it also is just a matter of investing in, in the relationship with, um, you know, between the treatment center and the payer. 
as as far as the outcomes are concerned, you know, it, it's starting to be, um, you know, really a matter of urgency for treatment centers to um, to monitor their outcomes and and report on their outcomes. Um, but but trust becomes an, an you know an important factor in this too. It ha- they have to be. Um, you know, the data has to be uh, verifiable. It has to be, it has to have integrity. Um, and so that's one of the things that, um, you know, we at Prosperity have, have been, uh, you know, actively engaged with uh, folks who are, who are working on outcomes research and working on tools to facilitate outcomes research. Um, I'll put in a shameless plug for a webinar that we're doing in a couple of weeks with Vista Research Group and Joanna Conti, who's doing some really outstanding work and has some great uh, technology tools for um, outcomes. And and the reason why it's so important is because again, that you know, the more you can provide uh, hard data, the more you can provide numbers around um, you are helping people achieve and sustain recovery. Um, that is what the payers are interested in here. And to your point about the economics for the payers, you're absolutely right. If you can prevent just one uh, visit to the emergency room uh, by one of your patients, the payer will come out ahead. Um, and so they have a very strong incentive to, you know, to compensate appropriately, to reward people um, who are really providing good treatment. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to get into a little bit of in-house versus um, outsourcing, but first, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of trends with outsource, or sorry, not outsource, but out-of-network versus in-network and where payers are going with that, where centers need to go with it? Sure. So um, as far as as far as that's concerned, I would say, you know, there's there are some broad trends across the industry that uh, that I can talk about. And then there are also some sort of more specific trends. I would say, you know, in the broadest possible sense, you know, there's a lot of uh, chicken little going on about the out of network reimbursement model. Um, Our view at Prosperity is that um, out of network is not going away anytime soon. Um, it's definitely a harder business than it was a few years ago. But about 50% of American, uh, about 50% of Americans who are covered by commercial insurance are covered by PPO plans. So there are plenty of patients out there who have out of network benefits, um, and the out of network reimbursement remains higher than than most of the in network rates that you can get um, through traditional contracting models. Um, you know, once you know, we, I was talking about value a little bit, a little bit ago, you know, we're big believers in the transition ultimately in this industry to value-based care, because that's where all of healthcare is going. Um, so over time, we think that in, in a value-based model, you may have the opportunity to, to, you know, receive more favorable rates than, than you might get in a traditional in-network contracting arrangement today. Um, but currently it's definitely true that you need to take a, a haircut on your rates um, if you if you go in network, the flip side of that is that obviously uh, you get access to that other fifty percent of the commercial insurance population that's covered by HMO plans. So you're going to convert more of your leads, and therefore your cost per admission is going to decline. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know there is the very real benefit from a sort of a business strategy perspective of 
it's a it's definitely a lower risk model. You have locked in reimbursement rates. You have you know a, a much broader patient pool that you can pull from. So you're gonna you're gonna have an easier time staying full, um, and you're gonna have an easier time. You know you're not going to have as much of the phenomenon that I was describing before, where the payers are gonna write you a check for less than you deserve. Not to say that that never happens. It does happen um, in the in network environment. More likely to be an error by the payer than sort of an intentional underpayment. Um, but it's much, definitely much uh, lower risk of that in an in-network environment. What about in-state versus out-of-state? So I see a lot of, not a lot, but I see some providers moving towards this requirement where they have to seek treatment in the state where they reside. Yes, so there is definitely uh, a movement in that direction. And for sure, the, the in-network um, you know, benefits are pushing people in that direction. And, and we believe that that is a, a long-term trend. Um, you know, if you look across the across the country, across the industry, we think that that is definitely going to be more and more true over time. Um, and so this goes to the sort of second part of what I mentioned a minute ago, which is that depending on what, uh, you know, what narrow uh, geography you're in or what narrow treatment area you're in, if you have a specialized program, um, the, the sort of broad rule of thumb that I just described about, uh, you know, the out of network versus in network could be totally reversed. So if you are in an area that is, you know, badly underserved, for example, um, you know, you might see an opportunity for really attractive in-network rates, whereas if you're in, again, to take an example of South Florida, um, it's going to be a lot tougher for you to go in-network. Um, similarly, if you have a specialized program, if you're treating professionals or if you're treating, you know, an underserved community of, uh, of people, um, whether that's geographic or demographic, um, you, you've got a better chance of negotiating more favorable rates, even on the existing sort of fee-for-service model. And definitely over time on the value-based model, if you can show that you're sort of providing differentiated outcomes for a target group, for, for people who, you know, who need treatment and who aren't able to get it somewhere else, that will be a huge advantage. So a question on that then. Let's say I'm running an LGBT program in Southern California, and I've got one of these providers, you know, the prospective patient has a provider that says in-state only, you know, do you have an opportunity to negotiate that because you run a specialized program and they can't get that same specialized care in their state? You definitely do. Um, that would be, that would sort of fall under the, the heading of a single case agreement. So you definitely can negotiate those with the, with the uh, insurance companies um, in, you know, on sort of unique circumstances. It's, um, it's, it's always tough, as any negotiation with any insurance company tends to be. Um, and so, you know, it's really important to have the right uh, person on your team or the right partner that you're working with um, who's really familiar with that process and, you know, who knows the ins and outs of um, how to make that case, not just, um, you know, not just the facts of the situation, not even just the right person to call at the insurance company, but how do you make that case in a compelling way that this care really isn't available to this person anywhere else? But I think like anything, right, if you did it once, it would get easier each subsequent time because you've got that relationship established, you got your case or your use case established, and then you can just kind of make it easier going forward. Would that be right? Absolutely true. Once you have a precedent established that you can refer back to, each time becomes easier and easier. Okay, great. Well, super awesome information there so far. So let's talk a little bit about in-house versus outsourcing. You know, some centers say they want to do it in-house. You know, what would you say are the pros and cons to that? Well, I would say the biggest um, the biggest 
pro to, to doing billing in-house really is, um, you know, that you have control over it. A lot of people who want to do uh, billing in-house have maybe been burned by a billing company before, or maybe more than one. Um, and obviously, you know, cash is the lifeblood of any business. Um, and so it's really important, uh, or it might seem important strategically to have control over that, to have it under your roof um, and under your leadership. The flip side of that, the con uh, aspect that I think is important to keep in mind, though, in that circumstance is that it's really hard. It's a specialized skill. It's specialized expertise. Um, and for most of, you know, for our clients, for sure, and I think for most people in the industry, it's not their skill. It's not their expertise. Um, you know, if you're a clinician or even if you're a business operator, you're not necessarily a finance guy. And even if you're a finance guy, you're not necessarily uh, a billing expert, a revenue cycle person. Um, and so there are so many nuances to it. Um, and, you know, as, as we talked about before, there are all kinds of little ways in which, um, you know, money falls through the cracks or, or money gets left on the table in the revenue cycle process um, that you really have to have an outstanding team in order to do it uh, successfully. What would you say is the minimum size needed to build a decent revenue cycle team in-house? Well, I would say, I mean, this is maybe a cop out of an answer, but ultimately it boils down to the people. Um, you know, if you have a, uh, a billing person or billing manager who is, you know, an expert in the field, who has, uh, you know, been in the industry a long time, who really knows what they're doing, um, and, and that person is, you know, maybe they're a partner in the business or maybe they have some other type of, you know, other reason to be involved. Um, you know, if you have the right person, you can be at the right size if you are 30 beds, 40 beds, 50 beds. Um, but again, you know, it, it, really, it really boils down to the person. So on the other hand, if you're going to go out and recruit, uh, you know, a team to do this, if it's not your skill, if it's not your area of experience, and you need to bring folks in from the outside, um, then it gets very expensive very quickly. Um, because really you need to have, you know, someone or multiple people who are, you know, who have expertise in you are, because that is its own set of, um, of unique skills and challenges. You need to have somebody who is really expert in uh, appeals. You need to have somebody who is, who is an expert in uh, billing and collections. We at Prosperity, our approach is to have, rather than have billers, collectors, and cash posters, which is something of a typical uh, model in the industry, we choose to have one person called an AR specialist who's responsible for the claim from beginning to end. So that person is a biller, a collector, and a cash poster. Um, so depending on how you want to structure your team, um, you can also do it that way. But that is a very challenging person to recruit and retain um, and train. Um, so really, you're starting to talk about uh, if you're going out, you know, to the to the outside to recruit a team. You're starting to talk about at least three or four or five people um, who are all, you know, again, in order to get the in order to get the real quality results, um, they have to be outstanding individuals, each one of them, and they have to work well together as a team. Um, so it's really it really becomes challenging to put that together um, for a small scale organization. So once you you know if you're if you're talking about um, you know, even even 75 or 100 beds, um, that's a lot to bite off. Mm -hmm. Sounds exactly like what it is from the marketing perspective. You know, on our end, you know, we'll have an SEO specialist, a digital marketing specialist, a graphic designer, a web developer, a strategist, 
and from a center perspective, right, for the price of one FTE or maybe two FTEs, depending on the size of the campaign, you get a whole team. And so it sounds pretty similar to what you guys are doing for revenue cycle management. That's exactly right. That's that's exactly how we think about it. That you know our team, um, you know, is is uh, best in class individuals in all of these roles, um, and we have best in class technology. And uh, you know, I don't mean this to be a shameless plug for Prosperity. There are other folks out there uh, who are doing what we do very well, also. Um, so you know, a, an outsourced provider, you know, can really bring that um, expertise. Um, to a uh, to an organization that doesn't have the scale or the financial resource to go out and recruit that team on their own. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like you said, I mean, the training element, you know, building up the systems and processes, having the tech in place, that's a whole other story <laughs> that a lot right. of centers don't have. Okay, cool. Well, I want to go back a little bit to the billing stuff. And we have had several conversations on Medicaid because I think Medicaid is a direction that the field needs to figure out and needs to go in. So can you talk a little bit about what your thoughts are on that and how you think Medicaid might be feasible for centers um, as we kind of move into this new era of the field? Yeah, absolutely. So we are big believers in the Medicaid business model, first of all, because it has all of the fundamentals of a strong um, you know, economic opportunity. There is a huge need for Medicaid treatment out there, and there is a radical undersupply of treatment in the market right now in, in most, if not all, areas. Um, so, you know, it goes back to my sort of uh, theme that I've been trying to touch on a little bit over the course of the conversation of, um, you know, we all can, can, can sort of rally around a common uh, objective, which is to advance the cause of behavioral health to, to you know, help more people achieve and sustain their recovery. Um, and the Medicaid population absolutely needs to be a part of that conversation. And from a business perspective, we think there's a huge amount of opportunity in serving that population. So what does that look like? How would that work? Because obviously people are avoiding it because the reimbursements aren't there. They don't think they can actually run um, a viable business. Yeah, so the first, the first uh, you know, challenge in Medicaid is always, to, uh, is always how local it is. So every state is different. The regulations are different. The reimbursement environment is even more different from state to state um, in Medicaid than it is in commercial insurance. Um, and obviously the sort of it's it's the ultimate local treatment business you can't have a destination medicaid center right so it's a very different business model than a lot of folks in the treatment industry have been uh, accustomed to over the last you know uh, several years but the good thing is that as you know as the industry is changing um, it's creating more and more opportunities in medicaid um, and and what i mean by that among other things is that federal money is starting to get allocated to address the opioid epidemic. And the way that federal money is going to find its way into sort of paying for better access to treatment is through the Medicaid system. Um, and so what that is going to do is a couple of things. The first thing is it's going to expand the patient population that has access to treatment through Medicaid. And the second thing it's going to do is it's going to provide opportunities for uh, state and local governments to um, experiment and collaborate with uh, treatment providers 
on different types of business models, different approaches to treatment. Um, and it's going to give resources for that type of an effort. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we really believe that um, obviously Medicaid uh, facilities are very different from a, from a business perspective than, than the traditional sort of commercial insurance driven model that we're all familiar with. Um, but that's exciting as the industry is continuing to change and the regulatory environment is evolving. So what do you think specifics look like from a continuum of care perspective? So Medicaid in most states has always covered detox, only like three to four days, right? Um, outpatients is usually covered in, in some way, shape or form as well. But where, where would you see or what do you think a model might look like for a Medicaid model? Would it be detox to outpatient? You know, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's sort of is the um, you know the most obvious model, um, and that's the one that we've seen most commonly, and that's been successful in our experience so far. Um, obviously, you know, as we continue to shift the conversation towards value um, in the um, you know in in the sort of traditional healthcare space, Medicaid and Medicare, uh, the government payers have been leaders in pushing um, the the value-based model. Um, and I expect that that will be the case in uh, behavioral health as well. I think that that probably will depend a little bit on a state-by-state -state basis. There will be some states that are more progressive in that area than others. Um, but I do think that um, in addition to the sort of traditional you know, detox outpatient model that you see in Medicaid, there is a lot of opportunity, as I mentioned, for sort of creative approaches to, to engage with the regulators, with the state and local governments, um, because there is such a, you know, the, the, the treatment is so badly needed. There's so, it's so underserved in a lot of places um, that there's really opportunity for people to think creatively and to engage with the stakeholders and to develop new models, um, whether they're value-based or, or otherwise. That will, um, you know, that will prevent present opportunities. I should probably ask you this before, but can you define value-based model for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, so value a value-based payment model is one in which um, the the treatment center gets paid um, based on the outcome of the treatment rather than just having performed it in the first place or provided it in the first place, um, and that can take a bunch of different forms. So, um, one way that that could work is that you might see a bonus that gets paid for a um, you know for successful treatment. So you monitor patient outcomes, you report those back to the insurance company, and if a certain number of patients, for example, doesn't admit to the emergency room over the next six months post discharge, um, you're going to get a bonus on that patient. Um, another type of value-based model is sort of the um, the case rate type of of model, where the uh, insurance company might say, okay, we'll give you um, you know, a lump sum payment of $25,000 to make sure this patient stays well over the next six to 12 months. Um, and then it's ultimately up to the provider to, to, to give the care that um, they think is medically necessary and is going to result in the best outcome for the patient um, and sort of stay under that cap um, to, you know, to make their profit margin. What about, you know, especially like in nursing home care, senior care, and some health care, there's a shift towards at-home care models. Do you see that factoring in either to the Medicaid model or general um, payer mix? So I think that that's, um, well, what's the, right way to answer, what's the right way of answering that question? I would say it's definitely an interesting um, sort of opportunity. And I actually um, had a conversation last week with 
a company that is sort of pursuing uh, a version of this. They're trying to utilize telehealth um, to reach people in their homes and, and, you know, outside of the four walls of a treatment facility. Um, so I definitely think that that's uh, an area of opportunity. And I think for sure, if it can be sort of demonstrated to be effective, again, it comes back to the value point. Um, the, the, the more effectively uh, somebody, whether it's a you know, provider or a research institution or you know, whatever the stakeholder is that is, is sort of engaging in the proof of concept here, um, the, more effect, the, the more that somebody can show the effectiveness of that, um, the, the more likely it is to, to present sort of economic opportunities with the payers. But I definitely think it's an interesting place for people to go um, on sort of the, the innovative edge of behavioral health. Yeah, very interesting. Well, fantastic information all around here, Greg. Is there anything specific that we haven't covered that you would like our listeners to know? Um, I guess the only thing that I would say uh, is that, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, in the conversation today talking about uh, challenges in one form or another. You know, uh, people are worried about their cash flow. People are burned, got burned by a billing company. People are agonizing over the in-network, out-of-network um, dilemma. Um, the one thing I would just sort of want to reinforce for your listeners is that I'm very optimistic about where this industry is going. I think there are a lot of opportunities. Um, and I think the core of that is around, you know, this philosophy that we have that we've seen borne out over and over and over again is good treatment is good business. Most people get into this industry because they want to serve, because they want to help people. Um, and, you know, some of the like best human beings that I've ever met in my life are in recovery themselves and they're working in recovery. And that's one of the big reasons that I love this industry um, is because of the like generous, kind, open-hearted people that I've met, uh, you know, working in behavioral health. Um, and the, the thing that I think is really hopeful is that um, that ultimately is going to lead to opportunities. Um, because as the industry is shifting, as we're moving more towards this concept of value and the emphasis on, um, you know, quality, um, that, that um, you know, that altruism, for lack of a better word, that, I, that emphasis on, you know, do good work and you will be rewarded for it, um, is, I think, really going to serve uh, people well. And I think that, that um, there are a lot of opportunities to uh, do good and do well at the same time. Yeah, great point. I think that's a place where we really probably align is because my feelings are very much the same. There's a lot of struggles going on in the space, right? Centers closing, et cetera. But the people that come through and come out the other side, they're going to be very high level of quality. Operational efficiencies are going to be there. They need to be there. And ultimately, it's going to build a stronger foundation for the field as a whole to provide better outcomes for patients. Completely agree. Well, Greg, if people want to get a hold of you or a hold of Prosperity, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, you can certainly visit our website, which is www.prosperitybh.com. Um, you can also give me a call. My cell phone number is on my business card, and there's a reason for that. I want people to call me. So my cell phone number is 718-753-4437. 
Um, there is nothing I like more than taking a call from a treatment center owner um, and just talking about their business. If you're, you know, it doesn't matter if they're a prospective client, not a prospective client, if they're doing this in-house, if they have, you know, another provider uh, for revenue cycle or back office services, I'm always uh, really, really interested to hear about challenges people are facing and also opportunities that they're capitalizing on um, and just talk about the business and, and try and learn because a big part of uh, our philosophy at Prosperity is constantly improving and, and becoming our best selves every day. So um, please, you know, call me just, to, to talk and get to know me and um, really will appreciate the conversation. Great. And uh, just kind of a heads up for some of our listeners out there, but uh, Prosperity Behavioral Health also has a, probably a little bit better of a cost structure than some other providers out there. Is that correct? That is true. Um, so we, uh, we have different models that we use. We, Prosperity provides a lot of different services. We, we have the sort of core billing and utilization review offering that a lot of other folks have. Um, and for that, you know, we're charging in the same structure, but we charge a considerably lower percentage uh, than, than a lot of other folks. Um, and then on the other hand, we have, uh, you know, back office uh, accounting, accounts payable, financial reporting, tax, a lot of other sort of financial support services um, that we provide that we, you know, charge on a fixed fee basis based on, you know, the, the time and energy required to, to serve. Um, but we also operate on a do or teach model. So we love to, you know, engage with um, clients on a consulting basis to help them improve their own, you know, internal operations and uh, troubleshoot issues that they're encountering with their team. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Greg. I really appreciate the time. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, thanks for listening. This podcast can be found or downloaded basically anywhere where podcasts are found. Uh, tune, in, tune in, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. This podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic marketing and growth for treatment centers. And you can always find out more about them at www.circlesocialinc.com.